0: If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. So, because we do not have our our screen working this morning, uh, whether it is an electronic copy of God's Word, or if you need a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you feel free to pick one of those up and turn with us to Acts chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days... And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Father, what a joy it is to be able to read your word and to see the effect of your word in causing People to be born again, to become disciples of Christ Jesus, and even many amongst the priesthood becoming obedient to the faith. Father, we long to see this kind of work. We long to be a part of this kind of work. And we pray for that work even this morning. Lord, help us through your word to become that much more obedient to the faith, that we might more resemble Christ Jesus and be under his discipleship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are plenty of advantages and disadvantages when it comes to belonging or being part of a small church or a mid-sized church or a large church. And perhaps some of you have been part of all three, have been part of all three. And so you are probably very well aware of some of the pros and cons of each. Having been a part of a large church in the past, there's many good things about it, but some of the cons or disadvantages is that it's easy to get lost. It's easy to have sort of the small group of people that you meet with on a regular basis, that you come to know, and those are the people that you seek out. But it is hard to get to know so many other people when there are so many other people. Where do you begin? How do you start? How do you go about that? And it's one of the advantages of having a small church or being part of a small church is that you get to know and you are known. When someone is missing, you are immediately aware. You get to know each other's stories, children, background, situation, what are the needs. But therein also lies one of the disadvantages of a small church, and that is that we can become too comfortable with the size because of the familiarity that is easy to have in a small church. When it comes to the church and the expansion of Christ's kingdom, growing is not an option, but growing is necessary, and it's necessary for at least two reasons— Number one, because kingdom work requires more laborers. Right? We want to see more people laboring for the kingdom of heaven. In the life of the church or outside of the church, if you want to grow and expanding the work of the kingdom, then we need more people with more hands on deck to take up the plow and continue to work. But another reason why, and perhaps even more important than the first reason as to why, growth is not an option, but necessary, is because many souls are on the line. Because many souls have the wrath of God abiding upon them, waiting to fall heavily upon their souls, and their only means of escape is believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we should want the church to grow, not for the sake of just growing, We want the church to grow because we are seeing and we want to see more people coming to saving faith in Christ Jesus. So as we consider the passage this morning, this is not about what are effective growth strategies in the life of the church. There are many out there, and quite frankly, many of them are quite silly and foolish, treating the church as a kind of business. Some out there are good and might be helpful, but it's not the question that we're wrestling with. That's not our great concern. Our great concern is not getting more people just for the sake of getting more people, but it is how, how to grow the church through the making of disciples, whether it is growing disciples already. Increasing in discipleship, growing to greater conformity to Jesus Christ, or making those who are lost into disciples of Jesus Christ. Our concern is not numbers, our concern is souls. Let's consider our passage. Our first heading is, The Word Increases and the Church Increases. Starting at the very end, and the word, verse 7, continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And the word continued to increase, Passage it says. It's the only instance in the scriptures where we see this. The word continues to increase. and I think pointing to the liveliness of the word of God is pointing to the fact that the word of God continues to bear fruit as it continues to be proclaimed, as it continues to spread out. And that is because this is not just an ordinary word, but because this is the living and abiding word of God. As it says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any 2 edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Consider the power of the living and abiding Word when you hear 1 Peter 1.23 where it says, Since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Words and sentences on a page, whether it is newspaper, whether it is in a magazine, whether it is on a book, can take a form of life, depending on how they affect us, whether it is illumining us to something we didn't quite understand before or helping us to know something we didn't know before, or whether it's affecting us emotionally or giving us some kind of newfound zeal. Right, Words can have a kind of life in them, depending on the words and how they might affect you, but this is very different than the kind of life that is contained in God's Word. The aliveness of the word of God is very different. The kind of living that describes the word of God is that which is living, speaking into that which is dead and causing that which is dead to become alive. No other word in all the world has that kind of power than the living word of God. And this is what the Word of God continues to produce. As we've been working through Acts and seeing time and time again the effect of the Word of God, this is what it continues to produce. Speaking life into that which was dead and then causing that which was dead to become living. And this power is contained in the Word of God. And this power You cannot take away that kind of power because the power doesn't come from us. The power comes from God who puts the power in His Word, whether it is the written Word or whether we are speaking the Word to one another or to those who are lost. But there is a way that we can limit that Word and its effect. The Word does its work when it is free to do its work. But there are some things that we can do to sort of cage the Word of God. For example, we can kind of cage the Word of God by our silence. When we do not proclaim the Gospel as we should, when we do not share the Gospel as we should, we can cage the Word of God by our works. One of the things that I stress when someone comes into membership and work them through the membership covenant is that when you are becoming a member of the church, you are committing to living a Christ-like life wherever you go. Not a perfect life, because that is impossible, but showing forth that there is a harmony between your life and the gospel that you believe. Because when you do not live out a life that is consistent with the gospel, you are hurting the witness of the church and the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and even in a way, caging the power of the Word of God. Because when someone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing that you're living a life that is contrary to that gospel, what reason would they have in believing in that gospel? If anything, they have every reason to not believe in that gospel. And in the passage, there is one other way of caging the Word of God that becomes clear to us. This takes us, secondly, to responding to a blockage. There is a kind of blockage in the system of the body of the church that becomes apparent. Verse 1, Now, In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. These Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. Specifically, they were widows. And the care for widows becomes increasingly important in the life of the church, thanks to the words of the Apostle Paul in First Timothy, a passage that we don't have time to get into. But for some reason, but it, it, this neglect wasn't an, an intentional neglect. It's not that there was some kind of intentionality, like let us, let us not provide for these widows, let us only take care of the Jews. I don't think that was the case at all. But what we see here is some growing pains. Time and time again we see that the church continues to increase. More people are made into disciples of Jesus Christ. More people are believing in that gospel and are welcomed into the church. And so the church continues to grow and now it's experiencing some growing pains. And one of those growing pains is that there were some, there was a particular group of people that were being neglected, probably in oversight, not intentional, It's easy. Wait, one of the disadvantages of having a much larger church is that it's easier to miss some of those needs because it's hard to become aware of all the needs in the life of the church, to some of the growing pains. The book of Acts, known as the Acts of the apostles. We've seen, again, we've seen the preaching of the apostles. We've seen the evangelism of the apostles. We have seen the apostles dealing with sin in the life of the church, namely through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we see here another of the acts of the apostles in dealing with something that became incredibly important in the life of the church. And that is, how do we minister well in the life of the church? How do we care for one another well in the life of the church? And in this way, they show that the apostles have a great concern for the church. Their care, their concern is, how do we maintain our unity? Because this has the opportunity to immediately dissolve our unity in the life of the church. Not only that, it would even hurt their witness, As the apostles continued to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, growing was not optional. They continued to proclaim the gospel so that people might be saved. And as people were saved, they were included into the life of the church. Now, this, this, as they considered this, this neglect in the life of the church, it became immediate need. And this would have been a dangerous neglect if left unattended because I said earlier, it would hurt the witness of the church, not only that, but it would prevent the church from continuing to grow. Even though they're given to the ministry of the word, the administrative issues of the church are not out of their concern because it deals directly with the church and their great concern is for the church Then verses 2 to 4, we see how they resolve this problem. The twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here we see that the answer that the apostles came up with was with the establishing of a new office in the life of the church, and that is the office of deacons. We need some oversight over the needs of the church. So deacons become a response to like this, this lightning strike of need in the church. They become a kind of shock absorbers. They're sort of the, the thick layers on an airplane that absorbs the lightning strikes. They are chosen by the disciples and then appointed by the apostles who function like elders in the life of the church. And for them to be appointed is to set them over. It's like setting somebody over your finances. Right? Right? This person might be managing your finances, giving you wisdom, insight, might tell you like this is all the buckets that you should have, this is how you should be saving your money, this is where you want to put your money in, things like that. But the one who set over your finances is not doing the shopping for you, right? They're They're not spending all the things that you want to spend your money on. They're just simply overseeing your finances. So in the same way, the deacons are established not to do all of the serving or all the deaconing, but they are set as managers over the needs and the care of the church. And included with this appointment, the apostles provide also a very small set of qualifications for these deacons. So that they should be men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. In other words, they ought to be men of good works, men of wisdom, and men of God. And that they should be men of good works, I think points to the fact that they should be men who are already deaconing in some ways. And certainly we're helped by Paul's sort of double-clicking on these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3:8, and it's worth reading that passage there. But the qualifications of a deacon, deacons, it says they're likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, saying one thing and then meaning something else, or talking out of two sides of their mouths, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We don't have the time to work through every single one of those qualifications as they are described to us in that passage but one thing that I do want to point out is this notice that in these in this list there is nothing here about skills they're all character qualifications in other words a deacon must doesn't have to be somebody who knows how to swing a hammer he doesn't have to be somebody who is well skilled in finances he doesn't have to be someone who knows how to fix an engine. That's not on the list. The needs, the specific needs, the particularity of needs do not determine the kind of men that you select. So in other words, let's say you needed somebody to do bookkeeping. right? And We have a bookkeeper in our church, but let's say that we, we need a bookkeeper and you have three men who are qualified to be deacons, and none of them knows how to do any bookkeeping, it would be wrong and against scriptures to say, I'm sorry, you men cannot be deacon because none of you know how to do any bookkeeping. Right? You're adding to Scripture there, you're essentially saying that bookkeeping is a character qualification according to 1 Timothy 3. But no, you first find the qualified men, and then you find where they fit in the life of the church. Now, why do the apostles look for men or say that these men must be a good repute? Why choose out seven men? I don't know why. It has to be seven men. I think that a church that has female deacons isn't wrong. I think you can make a very good argument for both male-only deacons or male and female deacons. In the life of the church, at our church we have only male deacons and that itself is sort of a whole other topic that we don't have time to discuss. These men are chosen and the apostles lay hands on them on a set in a way of sort of or- formally ordaining them, setting them apart for this ministry, a specific ministry in the life of the church. And so in order to resolve this issue of this neglect, the apostles institute the office of deacons to help grow the life of the church by overseeing the needs of the church and making sure that they are met. But there's another reason why this oversight is needed in the life of the church. In verse 2, again, the apostles summoned The full number of the disciples had said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. It is not fit. It is not acceptable for us to give up the ministry of the Word. And it shows the enormity of the need. The apostles were recognizing. It's one or the other. We cannot do both well. For us to be devoted to the one would mean giving up the other. It would be neglecting the other. It is turning away from the other to look to this particular need that has come up in the life of the church and making sure that that is met. But it is not acceptable for us to turn away from the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. Instead, let us set particular individuals who are overseeing the needs of the church and making sure that the needs are met. It is a question of what their primary concern was. And the ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer points to another need of the church. Right There is the physical, administrative, tangible needs in the life of the church that when those needs are met, it contributes to the growing body of the church of Jesus Christ. But there is also the spiritual and the soul needs of the church that are met through the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer that also have to be met, that also contributes to a growing body of Jesus Christ. So you need both. You need ministers of need and ministers of the word. One devoted to the needs of the church and others devoted to the Word of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.12 Let no one despise you for your youth, Paul tells Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech, and conduct, in love, and faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Devote yourself to the ministry, devote yourself to uh, the worship service, reading the scriptures to the people of God, exhorting them and teaching them through the word of God. Devote yourself to these things. The apostles, the ministers of the word, are focused on feeding the good food of the word of God to the flock of God. And they're also focused on besieging heaven on behalf of the church. You need people in the church devoted to both of those things. Not both at the same time, but men devoted to one and men devoted to the other. And devotion is not just simply showing up where you are expected to. Devotion is not just simply going to work eight to five, day in and day out five days a week. Right, you're just meeting the expectations. But devotion has to mean something more. I've been thinking about this passage, I've been thinking more about the word devotion. Because devotion has to mean more than just meeting the mere minimum, right? It is a kind of wholeheartedness. It is kind of giving of one's self. A concert pianist does not become a concert pianist without some kind of devotion. A skilled artist does not become so without any kind of devotion in his or her life. They must be devoted to that talent or that skill to become that accomplished. Devotion requires a giving up of one's self. And the apostles decided that they needed to be men devoted to the ministry of the Word and devoted to prayer, and for them to walk away from that devotion would not have been acceptable. Why would it not be acceptable? The Puritan Thomas Bergess answers, at least in part answers that question, when he laments and saying, Why in these latter days is it that the word preached makes no more wonderful works? At first, propagation of the gospel, so many fish were caught in the net that it was ready to break. And at the first reformation out of popery, the kingdom of God suffered violence, but now he that is profane is profane still. The blind are blind still, the proud still proud. What is the matter? Is not the word of God as powerful as ever? Is not to the Lord's arm as strong as ever? Yes. But the zeal of people is grown cold. There are no such fervent prayers, such high esteems of the means of grace. Men do not besiege heaven, giving God no rest day or night till he come with salvation into their souls. And truly the spirit of prayer is a sure forerunner of spiritual mercies to be bestowed. Now this speaks here, in the life of the church, to some degree, every saint ought to be devoted to a life of prayer. There is very little, if anything at all, that we can do in a Christian life without a life devoted to prayer. But you need, in the life of the church, men especially devoted to life of prayer. Why does the church need men devoted to prayer? Because the church needs men who give God no rest day or night until He graciously bestows His great mercies that He has designed in the life of the church. You need men in the life of the church as devoted guardians of unity and theology in the church according to Ephesians 4 because without that, you have a church that is much more liable to be tossed and fro by every wind of doctrine that is out there in the world. The church needs men devoted to the teaching of the Word, the preaching of the Word, the massaging of the Word, the famished souls, the proper handling of the Word, the equipping of the saints through the Word, the correcting of wayward sheep through the Word. The church not need less men; it needs more men who know how to handle the word of truth. Paul warns in his letters about putting a man into an elder who is an early convert or a recent convert. Why is that? It's not it doesn't speak to the genuineness of his transformation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But somebody who is a recent convert does, has not yet learned the skill of handling the sharp sword of the word. The church needs men who know how to handle the word, better than know how to how I know how to handle an axe and trying to get it to stick to a wall like we did as men last week. Right? If you have a man who knows how to handle an axe like I do, like right, you shouldn't put them in the ministry. Thank God that's one of the criteria qualifications, right? Knows how to throw an axe. And so these things are important. For a growing and vibrant church, you need both. You need to make sure the church needs, to make sure that the needs of the saints are being met, because without that, it has a way of stunning the growth of the church, and it has a way of impeding the witness. Of the church, and you need men devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. That takes us to third and lastly, desiring a growing church. And we see as the apostles appointed these men to this responsibility so they can continue freely about in the work of the ministry through the word and prayer. I'm reading verse 7 as a kind of result. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What is one of the most effective means of growing church is through the teaching of the Word. It's when you have men devoted to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Acts 20, which is a passage in Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders. It's a set of passages that I've been thinking a lot about lately. It's a passage that I've seek to emulate in my own life, in part because, quite honestly, I don't think I am as devoted as I want to be. And I see Paul's words here as a kind of example. In Acts 20, verse 18, he says these last words, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, both to Jews and Greeks, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I would love to spend the time unpacking what does he mean there by the whole counsel of God. That sounds pretty expansive. And it is. But through the trials, through persecution, teaching in public, in the temple, in the synagogue, and even house to house, of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring the whole counsel of God, that those words that are just bleed devotion and when you have in the life of the church men devoted to the ministry of need and men devoted to the ministry of the word you have a perfect recipe for a growing and thriving church And by the way, it doesn't mean that only elders teach in the life of the church. I mean, you just consider Stephen as a prime example. Stephen was not an elder, and yet he was one of the most powerful people in the first church, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, well-versed in the Scriptures, which we'll see soon when we get to Acts chapter 7. But what contributes, what helps to contribute to a growing church is when the work It's when the Word is free to do its work. And it is when men devoted to the work of the Word are free to devote themselves to that work. The ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer. Why is one half of the man's ministry devoted to the Word and the other to the Word or to prayer? Is because one is utterly ineffective without the other. You cannot expect any kind of success. You cannot expect any, expect any kind of fruit bearing in the ministry of the word if it is not saturated with prayer. It is prayer that makes the ministry of the word effective, powerful, and successful. Right? That is why when you and the church should consider. When any church considers a man to the office of an elder, one, a question that ought to be asked is how is your prayer life? Do you pray? Are you a praying man? Do you pray regularly? Because what reasonable expectation would the church have that the man would be devoted to prayer if he's not devoted to prayer already, even just as a Christian, not walking in those shoes of a pastor or elder. The word is the battery of the church, but without prayer, the battery is dead, providing no energy or power to the system of Christ's body. It is prayer that keeps the battery charged. So you need both. Ephesians 4:16 says. In Christ Jesus, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Certainly in the life of the church, everyone is called to serve. Right? We have there in that passage a growing body of Christ, and that is when each part is working properly, when the saints are each doing their part when the ministers of the church are doing their part, when those who wear those particular hats in the life of the church are doing their work, and every saint is doing their work, their part, it contributes to a growing body that has built itself up in love. And again, when it comes to the office of deacons, it's not that deacons are doing all the deaconing, it's not that deacons are doing all the serving and only them, but they are a kind of leader, amongst servants in the body of Christ. We're also men of the word too. As I said, this is important because unmet needs can stun the growth of the church. And we're called to be a, call, called to be a church that loves one another. Right? If one has this world's goods, this world's goods and sees their brother in need and yet shuts up his heart against him, how does the love of God abide to him, James says? Jesus says that the world will know that we are disciples if we have love one another. What is, the most, what is one of the most tangible ways of showing love to one another is meeting a need. And this is not, I'm not saying these things because our church does not do these things. I think, quite frankly, that our church actually meets needs very well. And some of you meet very, needs very well without perhaps many people even knowing but I'm just simply stating that this, is, this contributes to a growing and thriving church and this is also how we protect the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Growth in the church is not an option but necessary because souls are at stake because there's great kingdom work to do. And so when we consider these things and when we consider how do we feel about the church, how do we feel about the size, how do we feel about the familiarity or the family feel of the church, if and asking yourself, is there a kind of holy discontentment? In other words, loving the family feel that comes from a small church, but Am I too comfortable with the size of the church? Is there any kind of hunger, any kind of appetite for a growing church that is seeing people coming to Christ and more being added to the family of Christ? There is just simply too much at stake. There are lost souls who are in desperate need of the gospel, of Jesus Christ. And if we allow ourselves to become too comfortable with our size, then that will prevent us from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with the boldness that we ought. Because we don't want to disrupt the size. Because we don't want to disrupt the family feel. And there's a way of maintaining that family feel in the life of a large church, a topic for another occasion. But we must not let our being comfortable prevent us from seeking others and they're being added to the household of faith. And there is just simply great kingdom work to do. The work continues in the life of the church, and we need more laborers, not less. And if we want to continue to grow and expand in the ministry of the work, of the ministry of the kingdom of heaven, and what we need is more, not less, laborers in the kingdom. I would love to see a growing and thriving family ministry, a ministry that is devoted to helping and equipping families and raising their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Why is that? Because society right now hates the family and hates children and seeks nothing more than to sever parents from their children. We need to equip families. We need more teaching, not less teaching. We need more than what we receive here on Sunday mornings through the sermon. And while I am thankful for Steve Patton's continued faithfulness in teaching in Sunday school, what we need is more, not less, teaching in the life of the church. What if we had a second Sunday school? What if we had a midweek Bible study? With men with the giftedness to teach. What we need is to consider our evangelistic efforts, outward ministry. What if we had individuals passionate and desirous of seeing more evangelistic efforts in the life of the church and helping us to focus much more outward in the life of the church? what we need is not to do less ministry, but do more ministry, not for the sake of doing, but because we want to continue to glorify Christ in the life of the church. We want to see the body of Christ continuing to grow. We want to see more people added to the body of Jesus Christ. We want to continue to be used by the Lord for His glorious purposes, for the salvation of the lost, and bringing honor more and more honor to the gospel in Jesus Christ. If the Lord sees fit to grow us, and why wouldn't he want to? Let it be through the word being free to do its work as each part is working properly, contributing to the growing church that is built up in love with Christ Jesus as the head. By way of response,